Hello and welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This week, I'm looking at the boy in the box. This episode looks at the death of a child. I'll be looking at the injuries sustained and that might upset some people. You know what to do. If it will upset you, mark the episode as played and don't listen. Take care of yourself first. In 1957, a muskrat hunter was out near a park just north of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was checking his traps when he discovered a cardboard box lying on the ground. He checked inside and discovered the naked body of a boy. The body was wrapped in a blanket. Out of fear that the police would confiscate his traps, the hunter left the body alone and continued about his day. Days later, a college student stopped his car to help save a rabbit from the traps in the area. As he went searching for traps to protect the rabbit, he also found the cardboard box. He opened it and found the boy. He was also scared to contact the police, but knew that a body in a box was serious and reported it to them anyway. The police attended the scene the next day, finding the box in the same place the two men beforehand. The box had fallen onto its side and they could see that it had originally held a bassinet from J.C. Penny. The boy's body was still inside. The police searched the area and around 17 feet from the box, they found a man's cap. It was a corduroy cap with a leather strap and buckle on the back. There seemed to be a path made between the cap and the box. Other items that were found were a child's scarf and a man's handkerchief with a G embroidered in the corner. When the news hit the media, the police were inundated with calls and tips from worried parents who wondered if it was their child. The body was taken to a morgue where Philadelphia's chief medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Spellman, performed an autopsy. I'm about to talk about the state of the body now, so if you stayed to listen but are squeamish or feel like this might be too much, skip ahead. Spellman's report stated that the boy was between four and six years old. He had blue eyes and blonde hair. The hair had been cut badly and the longer parts had matted, with clumps of the cut hair sticking to his body. He was 41 inches or 104 centimetres tall and only weighed 30 pounds at the time of his death, giving him a gaunt and malnourished look. His skin was covered in surgical scars, with an L-shaped scar on his chin, one on the left side of his chest, a round scar on his elbow, 
a scar on his groin, likely from a hernia operation, and a scar on his left ankle that resembled the kind of scar that comes from a blood transfusion. There were no vaccination scars, suggesting that the boy wasn't in school. There's a list of vaccinations that are required to enroll a child in school in the US. The body was also covered in bruises from head to toe. It seemed to Dr. Spellman that the abuse had almost been constant before the boy's death. Dr. Spellman also saw that the boy's right hand and the soles of his feet were rough and wrinkled, suggesting that they had been submerged in water around the time of death. When using an ultraviolet light on the body, it was discovered that the left eye turned a bright shade of blue, which showed that it had been exposed to diagnostic dye used to treat chronic eye disease. Dr. Spellman put the cause of death down to head trauma, although whether it was a blunt instrument or pressure remains in question. Some investigators believe that the boy's head was squeezed during his last haircut. You can stop skipping now. The gruesome part is over. Once the autopsy was complete, the boy's body was clothed and his face was photographed in the hopes that someone might recognise him and come forward with his name. The investigation centred on the box initially. It was from a batch that had arrived at the J.C. Penney in Upper Derby, Pennsylvania in 1956 and cost $7.50 during the holidays of that year. The store held no records of individual sales but the other 11 from that batch were located by detectives. The box that was found was checked for fingerprints, but nothing lifted from it was usable. From the box, the investigators tried to find leads using the blanket. It had been made from a cheap cotton flannel, had recently been mended with poor grade cotton thread and had recently been washed. When the blanket was unwrapped from the boy, it was found to have been cut into two unequal pieces. It was sent to the Philadelphia Textile Institute for analysis. It was determined that the blanket had been made in either Swannanoa, North Carolina or Granby, Quebec. The blanket was one of those mass produced ones meaning tracking the place it was sold or who had bought it was impossible. The investigation then turned to the hat. The label inside the hat led the investigators to the Robbins Eagle Hat and Cap Company. Hannah Robbins, the owner, said that it was one of a dozen hats that had been made early in 1956. She had recalled the hat that the police had because it had been made without the leather strap. Hannah remembered that the man who had purchased the hat had returned with it so that the strap could be sewn in. After being shown photos of the boy, Hannah said that the man who had purchased the hat looked similar to him, but apologised because she didn't have a record of his name or address. 
To see if there were any leads to follow, the police ended up circulating over 10,000 flyers with the boy's photograph on them to other police departments across eastern Pennsylvania and southern New Jersey. The Philadelphia Gas Works sent out 200,000 flyers with their monthly gas bills and more were circulated by the Philadelphia Electric Company. The flyers were found in grocery stores, insurance agencies and pharmacies. In total, over 300,000 flyers were found in the area. An article was written for the FBI's Law Enforcement Bulletin as well but none of this produced any results. The police knew someone had to know something, but they obviously weren't coming forwards. After five months, authorities buried the body of the boy in Philadelphia's Potter's Field, near to the Philadelphia State Hospital at Bybury, which was a mental institution. The detectives had collected enough money to buy the graveyard's only headstone. It reads, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. The case went cold. In November 1998, the body was exhumed so the DNA samples could be taken. This was so that they could compare it with any potential relatives. However, In 1999, they said that they hadn't been able to get a satisfactory DNA profile. In 2000, the body was exhumed again so that they could get a DNA from the boy's teeth. This failed as well. A year later, they tried a third time and reported it as a success. So far, the prospect of finding any relatives seems hopeless but the investigators are still hopeful. The case itself has been looked at in unsolved mystery TV shows and things like America's Most Wanted, but still remains unsolved to this day. Obviously, with unsolved deaths and cold cases, there are theories. And of course, you can count on me to look at them. The first theory today came from a psychic in 1960. The psychic told an employee of the medical examiner's office that the boy had come from a local foster home. The police even followed the lead and went to visit the foster home discovering blankets similar to the one that the boy was wrapped in on the clothesline, and even a bassinet that had come from J.C. Penny. The employee theorised that the boy had been the son of the daughter of the man who ran the home, and that the death had been accidental. No connection has ever been made between the boy and the foster home, though, and the theory was eventually ruled out. During the 1960s, Remington Bristow and Bill Kelly, investigators on the case, were determined to get answers. 
They believed that the lack of vaccination scars were important to the investigation. They speculated that the boy had lived off the grid and had maybe been part of a travelling carnival show. That soon evolved to become an idea that he had been an immigrant after looking at newspaper reports that revealed an influx of Hungarian refugees in 1956. Together, Bristow and Kelly looked at over 11,000 passport photos. At one point, they believed they had cracked the case, but when they investigated, the suspect was very much alive. David Stout, an author, also theorised that the boy's parents had been travelling folk, able to live without a paper trail. This in itself would mean that finding the culprits would have been impossible and would also explain why nobody came forward with information. This theory was also supported by the 1961 arrest of carnival workers when their seven-year-old daughter had been found dead in a wooded area in Virginia. She was also wrapped in a blanket and showed signs of malnutrition. It turns out that Kenneth and Irene Dudley, the carnival workers, had a habit of having children go missing, with many of them passing away due to neglect and abuse. However, none of the children were found to be the boy. Some people believe that the college student who reported the body was involved in the murder. He voluntarily took a lie detector test and was cleared of suspicion. Some people still believe he was involved though, citing the unreliable aspect of polygraph tests. In 2002, a new lead emerged. A woman who identified herself as Martha claimed to have witnessed the murder of the boy. A psychiatrist from Ohio called the Philadelphia police to report the story. Martha was one of his patients and had asked him to call the authorities to report it. Martha claimed to have grown up in Lower Merion, Pennsylvania. She was an only child and claimed that her mother regularly abused her. When Martha was 10, her mother took her on a trip where she exchanged an envelope of money to purchase a toddler. They brought the boy home and then Martha's mother shut the boy in the basement, which was filled with trash and only had a drain for a bathroom. Martha said he never spoke and believed that he was disabled. He was also regularly abused and would often be made to starve. Martha said that the boy's name had been Jonathan. One day, Jonathan vomited up a plate of beans that he'd been given to eat. Martha's mother exploded in a rage and dragged him up the stairs, throwing him into the bathtub. Once there, she beat him and smashed his head on the bathroom tiles. Jonathan lost his life, and Martha's mother chose to shave his head to make sure people didn't find out that he had been kept as a prisoner. Then they went to find a place to dump the body. 
A witness at the time that the body was dumped had said that the body was put in a box that was already at the site. Information that Martha later corroborated. Investigators tried to verify all of the information from Martha's story. Skeptics question the validity of it though, because of Martha's history of mental illness. However, the route that Martha had described from her home to the site was confirmed. They checked the autopsy report and baked beans had been found in his stomach. One of his hands and both of his feet had also been submerged in water around the time of death. Martha's psychiatrist believes that it's true and that Martha had actually experienced it. However, the Philadelphia police disagree. They say that those details are all in public records. Martha and her mother weren't even blood relatives, so a DNA analysis would have been useless. Even the name Jonathan was of little use, because it may not have been the name he had when he was paid for. In 2016, Jim Hoffman and Luis Romano believed that they had discovered an identity from Memphis, Tennessee. They requested the DNA from the boy so it could be compared to the surviving family in Memphis. In recent years, police have been looking into genealogy to try and find a match for the boy's DNA. They believe they're close to finding out who exactly the boy is. Eventually, we may have an answer for this mystery. The story from this episode came from an ATI article called The Boy in the Box Case, Inside the Creepy Unsolved Mystery. An American Hauntings article called The Boy in the Box, and a Medium article called Unsolved Mysteries. Who was the boy in the box? Theories from this episode came from the previous articles and a True Crime Society article called Who is the boy in the box? References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, Links to those and other ways to listen are in the episode description under my link tree. You can currently find me on Facebook and Instagram. Patreon is getting an upload of one of the transcripts each week as part of the £3 tier. The link to the Patreon is also on the link tree and, as before, you're welcome to pledge more than £3 a month and I'll find something extra special for the people that do. I do have an email set up on the link tree but it doesn't open up a new email, so that's in the description of the episode too. Send me your spooky stories, unexplained events, and anything else you want me to read out. Or, if you have any corrections or issues with things that I've said, let me know and I'll address them as soon as I see the email. The next Creature Feature will be out on Saturday, and next week's episode comes out on August 3rd. So hold on until then. <laughs>